Thank you for joining us today. The following is a message from North Place Church. Our hope is that it will inspire you, uplift you, and bring you closer to Christ. If you'd like to watch the video of this message, visit our website at northplacechurch.com watch. Before I begin preaching today, I feel like it was important to address the reality of what happened last weekend in South Texas. We have not been together as a church family since the tragedy of last weekend's church shooting. And I know it raises a lot of questions to anybody that comes into a house of worship every weekend. There's not a weekend that I don't pull out of my home coming to this church for worship that I'm not praying that God would dispatch angels and give his angels charge over us to protect us and to keep us. And while we trust and believe God to do those things, we also are told to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, to be prepared. A little over a year ago, our elder team got together and prayed and really sensed God leading us to beef up our security team, and we increased our budget and hired more uniformed police officers to guard the various areas, our children's area and the lobby and the sanctuary. But we also added some um, plain-clothed officers that would be randomly dispersed throughout the building in every service as just everyday attendees. So the person to your right or left may be them. You know, you never know. They're just seated all here and throughout the building. And we made that decision a few uh, months ago, almost over a little over a year ago, actually. And Over the last week, I've been on the phone with security professionals that specialize with church and um, some of our local police officers, our team of officers that serve us have reached out to us to ask what can they do to help um, thwart or, uh, you know, to try to diffuse any type of escalating situation like that. There's a meeting. Our city government has called a meeting of local pastors to figure out how the city and the local police force here could serve us as churches. And so there are a lot of conversations going on. So I just don't want you to think that we're, because we're not talking about it, we're ignoring it. We've been addressing it for some time and we're trying to figure out how to become better and safer in the process. It's a sad day that I have to talk about these things from the pulpit of a local church, but the reality is it's the day we live in. And, uh, and so we are doing what we know to do now and we are working and consulting to become even better at it. And so we ask you, join us in praying for our safety and join us as leaders in praying for wisdom as we move forward in perilous times that we now live in, that God would shine his grace upon us, but he would give us wisdom to know how to chart the course accurately moving forward. About four weeks ago, I started a conversation with you about everlasting life, about our eternity, about what heaven was going to be like. Now, I paused last week. Uh, for Robert Madu as Robert addressed for us and inspired us on how to navigate and walk through our wilderness experiences. But today I want to continue the conversation about everlasting life. My original desire in launching this series was to shatter some of the long-held misconceptions about what life in heaven is going to be like. Our understanding of heaven has been more informed by tradition and legends and myths than it has been the scripture. And what I hope is that the last several weeks have shattered many of those myths and actually embedded in our spirits a healthy longing for our everlasting home, a genuine hope 
for the life after this one. The promise of heaven, if understood biblically, will actually erode our fear of death, bring comfort in our grief. It will build anticipation and excitement for the life to come and infuse our present life with wonder and worship. For those of you that haven't been a part of the conversation from the beginning, I encourage you to go back to the website of the church, northplacechurch.com, look at the archives, listen to them, watch them. I believe it will encourage you. If there's any indication from the emails that we've received or social media messages that we've received from those who attend here weekly or those who watch online, it will be an encouragement to you to continue this conversation online. Because it's been a few weeks, let me just review a little bit. Our hope and excitement of heaven has been eroded by misconceptions. And I don't think those misconceptions are coincidental. I believe that our spiritual enemy has a vested interest in thwarting your understanding of heaven, of stealing the hope that we have in heaven. Because if he can deceive us with a lie or even just a half-truth about heaven, he can rob us of our life's eternal reference point. He can rob us of our comfort. Because our grief will no, have no lasting comfort without the promise of heaven. Our obedience to his command to share our faith with our neighbor and the nations will never materialize without the promise of heaven the way the Bible describes it. Because who wants to invite people to an eternity that is going to be a long, dull, boring church service from which there is no escape. But that's not the eternity Jesus invites us to. That's the eternity most of us imagine when we think about heaven. The scripture teaches us that Satan has an intentional strategy to blaspheme heaven. Satan's schemes, according to Revelation 13, 6, and I'm reading straight from the scripture, is to blaspheme God, to slander his name, and his dwelling place. It is a strategy to insert these misconceptions in our mind because if we lose the sight of what the Bible says about heaven, it steals the joy out of our life today. Here's some of the misconceptions that we talked about. Number one, that when we get into eternity, we're going to be disembodied spirits. And that is not true. People just think there's going to be nothingness and we're going to be these spirits that are just surviving in nothingness. And the scripture goes to great lengths to teach just the opposite of that. We look throughout Paul's writings and in other places in scripture where the Bible tells us we will have resurrected bodies, real bodies living a real life. They'll be similar to this but very different and supernatural, just like the body of Jesus was. So if you want to get an idea of what your resurrected body is going to be like, look at the post-resurrection body of Jesus. He survived and lived on this earth several weeks before he ascended into heaven. That is an image of what your body is going to be like. Now, the reason that's important is because a lot of the other misconceptions of heaven are fed by this one that it's going to be boring and all of these things because we're going to be disembodied spirits floating around in nothingness. But if I'm going to have a real body... That's a game changer as to the way I'm going to spend eternity. Here's another misconception. Heaven is up there somewhere. And that's a partial truth. It's not the whole truth. Heaven is up there somewhere. But the truth is, ultimately, Scripture teaches that heaven will include earth. That heaven will be here. That God is actually going to come and make his dwelling among his people. The scripture says that God is going to create a new heavens and a new earth. And the new earth is going to be a part of heaven. That heaven is going to come down. The heavenly city, the holy city is coming down to earth so God can be with us. Revelation 21.2, John the Revelator says, And I saw the holy city 
the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them. So ultimately, heaven is coming to earth. Ultimately, God is coming to us. So I'm going to have a resurrected body on a new and resurrected earth. So this world is going to be made new and that's going to be the heaven that I spend my eternity in. And it has huge implications for the way I view the life after this one. It's also huge in the way that we look to the advent. Just a couple weeks, we'll be at the first Sunday of December, and that's the first weekend of Advent as we march with anticipation towards Christmas Eve and the birth of our Savior. Advent celebrates the inbreaking of God into human history through the birth of Jesus, but it also looks forward to the second advent of Jesus Christ when he establishes his kingdom on the earth. So this conversation about heaven is feeding the anticipation of our future discussion about Advent as we make our way into our Christmas celebration. Here's a third misconception. Heaven is boring, but here's the truth. If we have real bodies on a real earth without the presence of sin and evil, without the constraints of time and space, we will have an eternity filled with adventure, excitement, awe, wonder, and service to our king. When John describes heaven coming to earth, he describes it as a city. And cities are full of life, food, festivities, jobs, relationships, culture, arts, entertainment. Cities have life. And so me going to heaven is not the end of life and the end of living, but the beginning of living the way God originally intended it in a place that has now been made perfect without the influence of sin and evil. So all the last several weeks, we've been spending our time talking about the practicalities of the life to come, because those are the very things nobody talks about. When everybody talks about heaven, they talk about going to see Jesus. They talk about singing with the angels. They talk about worshiping God, but nobody talks about practicalities. So we spent the last several weeks answering some of the common questions about heaven. Will I know my loved ones? Will they know me? Will there be animals in heaven? I mean, we've been in the time being looking and getting a clearer perspective and a biblical understanding of the practicalities of everlasting life. But listen, in all of our conversations about the practical things, don't miss the main thing. Jesus is the goal and the glory of heaven. His presence is what makes heaven heavenly. And I want us to spend the remainder of our time today focusing on that reality. From a prison cell, the apostle Paul wrote the book of Philippians. He was being persecuted for his faith, for preaching the gospel. And from a prison cell, he wrote these words in Philippians three fourteen. I press on to reach the end of the race. The same way a runner would stretch out his chest at the end of the race in order to cross the ribbon. Paul says, I press to reach the end of the race, the ribbon. I want the prize. He said to receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. And the heavenly prize for Apostle Paul was both a place and a person. The place was heaven and the person was Jesus. And heaven is heaven because the presence of Jesus. So the ultimate prize for the apostle Paul that he was pressing on to was Jesus. Jesus is the goal and the glory of heaven for the apostle Paul. For the last 500 years, the Protestant church has summarized what the gospel really is by talking about the five solas. Sola in Latin simply means only or alone. So there are five onlys that summarize the gospel. And here it is, basically, let me just read a summation statement. 
as revealed with final authority in scripture alone, the gospel is the good news by faith alone, through grace alone, on the basis of Christ alone, sinners have full and final joy in God alone. Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. And notice that last phrase, it's talking about everlasting life. Those who have understood through scripture alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, on the basis of Christ alone, everybody who's received that and understands that, sinners have full and final joy in God alone. That last statement says the end game, the ultimate goal as a follower of Jesus Christ, the prize is full and final joy in God, in his presence, in God alone. The ultimate goal is unfiltered, unrestricted presence. We were created by God for the atmosphere of his presence in the Garden of Eden. But sin destroyed that environment. And since that time, this earthly sinful atmosphere, we have struggled and deteriorated and suffered from this environment. But the promise of heaven is that we will one day see Jesus face to face. And we will at that moment be completely and fully in his presence. And since the Garden of Eden, it will be the first time we will be in the very atmosphere we were created for. We will finally be home. The psalmist said in Psalm 73, 25, whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. In the second part of that, the psalmist recognizes the sinful atmosphere of this earth has affected his body. His spirit has grown weak. There is a deteriorating element to living in an atmosphere that we were not created for. But the hope of the psalmist is the promise that he will one day be eternally in the presence of God. Whom have I in heaven but you? And that hope is what sustains him in this life. The goal and the glory of heaven for the psalmist was the presence of God. If your longing for heaven is simply to get there to have relief from your pain then your longing and your desire is a deficient desire. If our only longing for heaven is to reunite with our loved ones and our family and our friends, it is a deficient desire. If our only longing for heaven is to see the beauty and walk on straits of gold and see the descriptions of the gates of pearl, it is a deficient desire. If our only longing for heaven is to have that resurrected body that we've been talking about, it is a deficient desire. If this is all we long for, we have not yet grasped that the scripture teaches about what makes heaven heavenly. Every one of those things I just said are of course promises in eternity to every child of God. But heaven is not heaven apart from the presence of God. There are so many things in this earth that try to restrict and resist our experience with God. But John in the book of Revelation says that the presence of God is so full and so rich in that heavenly city that there's no longer a need for the sun or the moon because the glory of God is so strong and rich that the Lamb of God and his glory is what lights the entire city. John the Revelator goes on to say that there's not even a church in that heavenly city because the glory of God. Now, I know that's, that sounds strange to us because we spend our entire lives coming to church in order to get ready to go to that city and to read this scripture that says there's not a church or a temple in that city because the glory of God is so rich and full that no structure can contain it. His glory permeates the entire city. He writes in Revelations 21, 23, I saw no temple in the city. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. His presence is the temple. 
Verse 23, and the city has no need of sun or moon for the glory of God illuminates the city and the lamb is its light. What makes heaven heavenly isn't the absence of evil, but the presence of God. That's the very essence of the gospel. Yes, they're going to be the absence of evil, but what makes heaven heaven is the presence of God. That is the gospel. That is the good and the good news. The reason Jesus came to live and to die and rose from the dead is not so we would get heaven. It was so that we could get God. That's the ultimate goal of the gospel is that we get God and we get to enjoy him in this amazing place. But the ultimate goal is to get into the presence of God. John Piper explains it this way, and I'm just going to read directly what he says. He says this, but what is the ultimate good in the good news? It all ends in one thing, God himself. All the words of the gospel lead to him or they are not the gospel. For example, salvation is not good news if it only saves from hell and not for God. Forgiveness is not good news if it only relieves, gives relief from guilt and doesn't open the way to God. Justification is not good news if it only makes us legally acceptable to God, but doesn't bring fellowship with God. Redemption is not good news if it only liberates us from bondage, but doesn't bring us to God. Adoption is not good news if it only puts us in the Father's family, but not into his arms. This is crucial. Many people seem to embrace the good news without embracing God. There is no sure evidence that we have a new heart just because we want to escape hell. That's a perfectly natural desire, not a supernatural one. It doesn't take a new heart to want the psychological relief of forgiveness or the removal of God's wrath or the inheritance of God's world. All these things are understandable without a spiritual change. You don't need to be born again to want these things. The devils want them. It's not wrong to want them. Indeed, it's folly not to. But the evidence that we have been changed is that we want these things because they bring us to the enjoyment of God. This is the greatest thing Christ died for. Peter writes, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Literally, bring us now into relationship with God and then into his presence for all of eternity. Jesus died and suffered so that we would be brought to God. The goal and the glory of heaven is that we get God. We get Jesus and we spend an eternity with him. When you look throughout the scripture in multiple places, our eternity, our followers of Jesus Christ, is often described as rest. The writer of Hebrews calls it a Sabbath rest. Here's what he says in Hebrews 4. God's promise of entering his rest still stands. We ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it, those that don't accept Christ. For this good news that God has prepared, this rest. There is an eternal rest prepared for us, but the rest here is not a reference to a long nap. It's a reference to the reality that we live restless lives here. That our lives now in this earthly atmosphere are filled with anxiety about the past, about the present, and about the future. And it was so real, it caused St. Augustine to write, Our heart does not rest until it rests in God. We were created for his presence the same way a fish has been created for water. We don't survive outside of the presence of God. And we will not be fully at rest until we are in that city, Eden restored in his presence. That is the goal and glory of heaven, his presence. It's what our hearts long for. Without even being fully aware of it, you and I have been praying 
for heaven to come to earth our entire lives. Anytime you have cited the Lord's prayer, you have been praying that God would recreate the heavens and the earth and he would bring that promise of heaven to earth. Jesus taught it when he taught us how to pray in the Sermon on the Mount. It reads this way in Matthew 6, verse 9. Jesus said, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the Lord's prayer in the very first few lines of it are in essence God telling us and teaching us to pray that his kingdom would fully be established on this earth. And you've been asking for it and may not even fully realize what you've been asking for. But the ultimate answer to the prayer Jesus taught us to pray is what John saw in Revelation 21 when he saw that holy city coming down from God out of heaven and making his dwelling among his people on this new earth. That's what Jesus told us to pray for. That's what John saw. We've been praying for that. Now, let me explain something that trips some people up. Here's a little theology. People ask, who's right, John the Baptist or Jesus? Because John the Baptist told us this. When he preached and Jesus came, he said, repent for the kingdom of God has come, like like it's already here. And now Jesus is telling us to pray and he's asking us to pray that the kingdom of God would come. So what is it? Has the kingdom of God come or is the kingdom of God coming? The answer is both. There is a now of the kingdom that is already here and established on this earth through the work of Christ. And there is a not yet of the kingdom that is coming in fullness when he finally and fully establishes his kingdom on this earth as we read in Revelation 21. It's the now of the kingdom and the not yet of the kingdom. So as you pray for the Lord's prayer and you say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. A part of you is praying that God would manifest a greater measure of his kingdom in your life right now. And there is a part of you that is praying the fullness of the kingdom that it would be like John the Revelator saying, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. You are aligning your heart with him. Lord Jesus, come. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Jesus told us in Matthew six thirty three to seek the kingdom. And if we'll seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these other things will be added unto us. Seek the kingdom. And there are moments that we experience a now taste of the kingdom. The kingdom is here now. And we experience a now moment of the kingdom. And all it does is give us a small taste of the not yet of the kingdom. Some of you will know exactly what I'm talking about. You've been in those services where they were uncommon. And I know that the presence of God, he's omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. But there are those moments when we become more aware of the presence of God than we have been at other times. Some of you have been in those services where people were worshiping or it was a special moment and it was almost like the roof was peeled off the place, the windows of heaven opened, and the creator of the universe made himself known to the people in that room in a very uncommon way. There was a weightiness to the presence of God. He was in the place. I can't tell you the countless times in my life where there was just a holy hush that came across the room because everybody in the room was aware God is in this place. Heaven came to earth in that moment. Some of us have had those experiences in our own personal prayer times where it's in our private prayer places or in our cars. We've been worshiping and praying and it was different than any other day that we had had. It's like we had the attention of God and that heaven came to earth and it was real. He was with us. I thought about some of those in my life this last week as I was thinking about the now of the kingdom that gives me a taste for the glory of the not yet of the kingdom. I remembered one particular moment in my life. I was young, kids were little. I was driving across the state for a meeting um, early, early in the morning and it was uh, was about 
four or five o'clock in the morning. It was obviously still dark outside, and I'd been driving for an hour listening to worship music. And it was one of those moments where God just, my co-pilot that day, I mean, he just came into the car. His presence was thick. I'm weeping and worshiping. And, and I, I mean, I'm just, I'm, I mean, you'd have thought I was crazy if you'd have been, you know, I'm singing and I'm crying and I'm praying uh, and I'm driving down the road. And I, 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 my navigation tells me to turn to the right and, and I get to the, it's a train a track and early in the morning, there's a train on the track, red lights are blinking, the bars are down and, and I kind of been trapped by a seat and a seatbelt this whole time. This was just a good chance for me to get out. So I unbuckled the seatbelt and I'm standing in the double yellow line in the middle of the road, nobody there, but, and I just, I'm walking with my hands in the air, crying, I'm praising the Lord. I don't know what happened. I guess I just kind of lost my mind for a minute. I forgot all about what I was doing. And by the time I came back to what I was doing, the train was gone. The lights had quit flashing. The little bars had come up and there was a line of cars on the other side of the railroad track waiting across the road and they were scared to move. They didn't, they didn't know what to do. There's a crazy man at 4.30 in the morning with his hands in the air pacing the road, tears rolling down his face, yelling out to God. I'm sure somebody called 911 to report me. I'd escaped from somewhere. I know that's had to be what it looked like. And somebody says, well, I lost my mind. Well, I can say that maybe I did. There's a Hebrew word for worship called called halal, and it simply means to lose your mind. And there was a moment where heaven came to earth in such a real way in my life, I forgot where I was. I was enraptured in worship. And that moment was a now moment of the kingdom that gave me a taste of the not yet glory that I will one day experience when I get God the way I was created to get him through a relationship with Jesus Christ. One of the, amen. I was remembering some of the veterans in my life this weekend that had profound influences on me. And one of them is a man by the name of B.H. Clinton, and he was an officer in, in the armed forces in World War II, wounded in battle. And, uh, he was at the end of his life when we had our conversation. He, he left the military after he was finished with his service and became a preacher, uh, a renowned preacher of previous generations. Brother Clinton was talking to me that day and he was explaining to me what it was like and I wish I could describe it in the vivid detail he did about freezing to death nearly and nearly starving to death and being shot and awaking in a infirmary, not knowing if he was dreaming or he was really alive and, and what it was like the day they came in and told him and said, sir, you're going home. He said, I packed my stuff up and I boarded a boat headed back to the U.S., and it was a long, long boat ride. He said, we had no way to iron our clothes. He said, I remember taking one leg of my pants and slipping it under the bunk of my mattress one night to try to crease that leg, and the next night I would swap the next leg and I'd sleep on the next leg so that when I got off the boat, I would have some semblance of a crease in my pants. He said, Brian, when I pulled into the harbor, the U.S. harbor that we docked at, a wounded soldier standing on the bow of that ship there was no end to the mass of people that have gathered there to welcome this boat back. They were waving flags. There were children. There were beautiful young women. There were senior adult couples. My parents were there. I had uncles and relatives that were there to meet me. And he said, it was amazing. You could hear the band playing from the halls of Montezuma to the hills of Tripoli. I mean, there was this amazing homecoming. It was a sense of pride that welled up inside of him and tears began to form in the corner of his eyes. This man was probably in his late 80s at the time. He's telling me this story. And he said, 
I thought he was about to tell me the heart of the story about that return home as he paused under his emotion. And he said, but there's only one thing in life that's going to pale in comparison, that's going to make that experience pale in comparison. And he said, I don't know if I'll go by the way of the grave. I don't know if I'll go by the way of the rapture, but one way or another, I'm going to sail into the celestial sea in the good old gospel ship. And when I approach the gates of that city, There's going to be a blood-washed throng that is going to welcome me in robes of white. And when I get all ready to get off of that ship, there's going to be some familiar faces that I know. There are going to be people that recognize me and a host of others that I don't. I'm going to be aware of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I'm going to spend a little bit of time with my relatives. But he said, when I get through that crowd, ultimately I'm going to tell them, part the sea and just let me get to Jesus. Because he is the reason I'm here today and I just want to see Jesus. Brother Clendenin's story reminded me, you know, there are songs when you first come to Jesus that mark your life. And I, um, I could refer to an old song as if it was one of the 100 or 200 year old hymns of the church. And this is, compared to those, this isn't an old song, but to compare to many of us, the one we're about to sing is, it was written in the 70s, about 40 years old this year. And it's one of those songs when I came to Christ in the early 90s that marked me because it made me begin to think about what it was going to be like when I made it to heaven. Some of you will recognize it. Some of you won't. But I hope the words of this song begin to pull together what I've been saying over the last few moments. There's going to be a lot to see and do there. But ultimately, our hearts want to see him. I asked Pastor Bear, if not for anybody else, for me, would you take us back down the journey of this 40-year-old song today and give us a glimpse of what it'll be like as we walk into that city? I dream of a city called glory So bright and so fair When I entered the gates I cried holy And the angels, they homed me to mention all the signs that I saw but I said I just want to see Jesus cause he's the You are holy 
out my hands and sing glory. I sing glory to the Son of God as I enter gates of that city Oh my loved ones they all knew me well And they took me down the streets the streets of heaven Such things too many to tell I saw Abraham I saw Jacob and I saw Isaac I talked with Mark Luke Timothy I said, friend, I just want, I want to see Jesus, cause he's the one, he's the one that died for me, oh Lord, I bowed on my knees and I cried, oh cried holy Lord you're holy yes you're holy Lord I can't help but clap my my hands and sing glory I sing glory to the Son the Son of God in glory to the Son of God. Come on, stand with me and sing that today. This is the so goal I and the glory of heaven. All you know it. My knees and cry holy. We're going to join the song of the angels. Holy you are my hands. I clapped my hands and sang glory. I sing glory to the Son of God. One more time. Bless his name today. Oh Lord, I bowed on my knees and cried, oh
this promise of heaven isn't out of some Spielberg movie it's not the fantasy of some children's novel it's the promise of Jesus he said I've gone to prepare a place for you and if it were not so I wouldn't have said so I've gone to prepare a place for you that where I am there you may be also it's a promise And it infuses my present life with wonder and worship. I'm going to ask the prayer team if they would to come and prepare to serve you today. We do this every weekend because we do believe there is a now moment of the kingdom. And that because the kingdom has come, that sickness can be healed and marriages can be restored. And Jehovah Jireh means the provider can provide and whatever mountain you need moved today, the kingdom is here. As we wait with anticipation, we're going to do that in Advent in an even greater way for the kingdom to come in fullness. But there is a measure of the kingdom here now, today. And we believe God in faith to, to move whatever mountain is in your way today, in your marriage, in your life, in your family. That's why we want to pray with you. Join our faith with yours and trust God that the kingdom will come that his will will be done in your life as it is in heaven. But I do want you to understand all the promises that I've been talking about today, and I've said it every week, heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. All these promises are made to the followers of Christ. And if you're in this room today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, let me invite you to come and talk with some of the people at the front of this building today. There is no greater joy in our lives than to talk with someone about the Spirit of God working on their hearts. And the greatest joy of our life is to pray with someone who chooses to surrender their life and commit their life to Christ. And he's done the work. For us, it's just the surrender. And today, I encourage you to surrender your life to Christ. I came into the weekend service today with a heavy burden for people that have known him. They've known relationship, but they've lost fellowship. They've kind of, their spiritual life has grown cold. They've been distracted. They've been going another way, pursuing other things. And this morning, this weekend, they're going to sense the Spirit of God calling them back home. And prodigal, if God is tugging your heart today, don't you leave this building. He's pursuing you. Don't you leave this building today without getting your heart right with God. Father, I just pray today that your spirit would pursue us in a very tangible way. That you would draw men and women into relationship with you. That every wayward drifting heart would be pulled back home today. Every discouraged heart would be encouraged by the promise of heaven and the kingdom that is here now. Lord, I pray today you'd bless them and keep them. You'd make your face shine down upon them. You would be gracious to them that you would turn your countenance their direction today and that you would give them peace. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. These altars are open. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this message from North Place Church. Feel free to share it with your friends. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at North Place and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Church. 
to watch the video of this message, go to northplacechurch.com slash watch.